in a state of emergency when it comes to the millennials. We really have to step up to the forefront and serve our purpose. We, we come from a heritage of elders who have kind of like given us the blueprint. Howard emerged as a black power ally. They provided access to the university's many programs and resources. So this town and gown relationship actually was the fruit of the labors of students who had pushed and fought for some recognition. They protested and seized the administration building because Howard would not respond to their demands for black power. All of this attention to the so-called white working class, what's striking about that is that they're smuggling a race concept into the idea of class solidarity. I mean, there is a working class that includes black and white and Latino and Native American and Asian American. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Today, part three of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016, marking the half-century anniversary of the call for black power in this country. We've looked at economics through the lens of labor, housing, gentrification, and a bit of local politics. And today we look at social justice activism with what's happening right now in D.C. in the Movement for Black Lives. And we hear from veterans of the black power movement 50 years ago. Also, Professor Gerald Horn puts black power in an historical context. So as always, we have a lot crammed into our less than an hour, which will start with this week's headlines as the hysteria about Russia's alleged interference in the U.S. election grows, a key mystery is why U.S. intelligence would rely on quote-unquote circumstantial evidence when it has the capability for hard evidence, say members of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Writing for consortiumnews.com and commondreams.org, the group adds, we have gone through the various claims about hacking. For us, it's child's play to dismiss them. The email disclosures in question are the result of a leak, not a hack. All signs point to leaking and not hacking. Their full letter is signed for the steering group, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and that includes William Binney, Mike Gravel, Larry Johnson, Elizabeth Murray, Kirk Wiebe, and Ray McGovern, who we interviewed on this show in October. Hundreds of activists rallied in downtown D.C. Saturday in a large demonstration of solidarity with the Standing Rock water protectors that have been opposing construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. Chantal James has more. On Human Rights Day this year, hundreds of protesters gathered at the Capitol for a Stand with Standing Rock event. The event was a protest against the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which would harm 17 million lives along its path damaging the water supply and harming the environment. It featured a performance by the Head Rock. Speakers included Nat the Native American leaders Juanita Cabrera-Lopez, who gave her traditional blessing, and Chauncey Peltier, son of political prisoner Leonard Peltier. Protesters held signs reading, Solidarity with Standing Rock and Water is Life. Speakers were critical of the mainstream media, saying that it has not devoted enough coverage to this and other events affecting Native Americans. In addition to the rally, there was a march through the streets where protesters chanted, Can't drink oil, keep it in the soil. 
Corey Michael Parsons, a Native American leader who had traveled from North Carolina, lets those gathered know that Standing Rock is only the beginning of the struggle. We have to understand that Standing Rock is the beginning. It's not the end. Standing Rock is the model. Standing Rock, the people there, have provided a model of courage and stiff resistance that we have to learn from and follow. Because there are many, many, many Standing Rocks coming at us. And they're going to come at us hard and quick, starting from mid-January on. How many of you know about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline? How many of you know about the Algonquin Pipeline? How many of you know about the legislation pending in Congress to seize over 100,000 acres of Ute land in Utah? That's just a few of the things that are coming. This time, we have to be proactive. We can no longer afford to be reactive. We have to be No Pilgrim Pipeline either. It's coming hard and strong. It's been going on for 400 years. It can't go on any longer. No. I know no one who can drink or bathe in oil. Everybody needs water. Yes, water is life. My people would say, Kikiyu Nupi, water is life. Kikiyu Nupi. Kikiyu Nupi. Water is life. Water is life. Kikiyu Nupi. Kikiyu Nupi. Kikiyu Nupi. This is Chantal James for On the Ground, signing off. 100 protesters also marched on the White House and the Trump International Hotel on Monday against proposals by President-elect Trump for a Muslim registry. Organizers also want President Obama to permanently eliminate the Bush-era in Sears program, a non-citizen registration system put into place after the September 11, 2001 attacks. 83,000 people were forced to register and 13,000 were placed into the deportation system, even though none of those registered or detained were found to be involved with violent activities. The NSEERS program was suspended in April 2011, but the Trump administration is mulling, shoving it back on the table. Aram Ali of MoveOn.org and Roxana Munn of DRUM were among those who addressed the crowd. We will be out here for Muslims. Organizers of this week's action delivered a petition to the White House with 341 signatures asking President Obama to completely shut down the NCS program before he leaves office so that it cannot be revived by the next administration. In culture and media, new movies opening today include Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Will Smith and Collateral Beauty, and Neruda about the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. 
And there are many community-run collectives offering sales of items that allow you to support artists and crafters as well as small businesses and businesses owned by women and people of color. Busy Bee presents more than 60 pop-up shops tomorrow, Saturday the 17th, and next Friday the 23rd at 9th and P Streets in Northwest D.C. And the organization Appeal is holding its co-op Saturdays featuring products and holiday gifts manufactured by black businesses and makers. And their event is at Emoja House, 2015 Bunker Hill Road in Northeast D.C. And those are some of the headlines and happenings when we come back. Part three of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. Stay with us. for Black Lives is the most recent active and visible manifestation of the centuries-long black freedom movement in this country, and especially with the comprehensive national platform issued this year, the movement for black lives is the natural heir to the call for black power issued 50 years ago. Here in D.C., the focus of that movement right now is Terrence Sterling, an unarmed black man from Fort Washington, Maryland. Sterling was riding his motorcycle in downtown D.C. when he was shot to death by Metropolitan Police Officer Brian Trainer on September 11th of this year. Since then, there have been weekly Monday actions, such as the one from October 3rd you just heard with the voice of April Goggins, core organizer for Black Lives Matter D.C., and also including a demonstration that greeted Mayor Muriel Bowser last week at her home. This week's look at black power begins at a meeting held this week led by Minister Stephen Douglas, friend of Terrence Sterling. He and other organizers want to keep the movement alive during the winter and in the city where it can be difficult to sustain community activism. My name is Ariel. I'm here to get justice for Terrence Sterling and other people like him. Like, like I said, um, first time I think I spoke to you, I said we were facing an epidemic. 
where police related violence is slaughtering uh, black men, women, and children. And I'm like, you know, we're they're slaughtering other people as well, but we're here to talk about black people today. So, um, my name is Tracy. I'm part of Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100, which is in the movement for Black Lives here in DC. Tonight, I'm here as an individual, but I'm here because because I don't have a choice. So that's why I'm here. And also because I bring a lot of expertise and a sense of like direct action, but also real, I'm also a realistic person when it comes to like capacity and stuff like that. You know, it's great to see people who have the energy and the drive, but at the same time, how do we, how can we be more strategic about uplifting stories and how can we bring in other stories to make amplify it at the same time? How do we utilize um, that drive? Yeah, and how can we, what's the, my thing is always, what's the biggest impact you can have with the least amount of people? So I bring some of those skills. I've been on Esther's show a couple of times. I've been up Charlotte. I've been in Milwaukee. I've been in Baltimore. You know, I know my way around. Queenland. I mentioned earlier that I've, I've been to several different Terrence Sterling uh, actions of protests and just a desire to know what's happening now, just a desire to know uh, where it's currently at and yeah, how can we move forward? How can we make sure that his name doesn't disappear? Minister Stephen Douglas. Terrence was a uh, excellent friend of mine and I really started doing this to be a younger mouthpiece for his parents, they're older they operate under older uh, principles. So kind of like what it is that we do is not unfamiliar to them. They're just not on that scale on this generation. Uh, and so I've, I've became kind of like their street mouthpiece while they have their legal piece. And so uh, God has just really charged my heart to really get out here and make sure that this young man does not die and has not died in vain that we, and I know there's hundreds and, and many people that have died at the hands of the police and, and I'm not uh, shying away from them, but I believe that dealing with the issues at hand uh, and on my watch, dealing with this issue is very important. And so uh, to have a young man who uh, you really can't or cannot plaster his name with any negativity because there's nothing attached to it uh, is, is one of those things where you uh, really have to make sure that you keep pressing on the mark to make sure that this young man uh, gets the justice that he deserves. I'm quite sure uh, if he had a record, I'm quite sure if there was other things to attach to him, we would have heard other things about him because they would have slanged him in a negative way. Uh, but when you have a man with no record, uh, nobody has anything really much negative to say about him. Uh, uh, what you try to do is just put it on mute, period. Uh, and so it's very important for us uh, and, my, and myself that we continue to do this. And so for the last 13 weeks, this has really been my everything. You know, it's, it's, I've, I've sacrificed my family, my children, because I believe in the cause. And I just want this to be pretty much what kicks off the door, off the hinges. You know, a lot of times people say people have paved the way for us and they've opened doors. But the thing about a door, when you open it, there's an option to close it back. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and where we are today, we have to knock these doors off the hinges that there is no more door. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to keep moving backwards and having to go back to status quo and back to protesting as usual and the things that we find ourselves doing in normalcy now because things like this continue to take place. Uh, and so with that being said, 
know where we're going next. Oh, my man Griffin. Before uh, before he says anything, I, I really want to say that, that God has really blessed us amongst each other with all the expertise and everybody having their own lane that they serve a multitude of greatness to uh, is a very special thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. So my man has been with me since day one, A1, straight off the live news channel, straight to the streets. I mean, out of his living room, from his family, straight down to third and them. So I'm appreciative uh, of him as well. So um, my name is Griffin Smith, and yeah, freelance photographer. I'm here, like you said, uh, was watching the news early one morning and saw it, and I, I came down because the uh, story just, uh, you know, it hit me right in the heart. So I, I came down to be a part of it, met Stephen, and we've been rolling every cent. Come from an activist family. Uh, father was very instrumental of you know, getting me out, out very early, and uh, I continue it on, you know, now that he's gone, um, just here to, uh, you know, just get justice for um, one of our brothers, basically. The main goal is to get justice, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't want it to just stop at Turn Sterling. I want, once this, which is, as some of them have been clear, closed cases, but I want this to be something that involves into the next time you kill any unarmed man, woman, child, cat or dog, you'll think of a turn sterling. And I'm 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 really been pushing the God laid on my heart that I really want to, you know, and with again you all's expertise, I really want to amplify and I've been talking to other people who are good in areas of turn sterling law where there's no more decreasing from murder to manslaughter when you all are held to a higher standard and see a lot of times when when, when you constantly hear things and and you know you go places and they keep saying training 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 i'm done with that whole illusion because people that have deadly force and who are supposed to be held at a higher standard should not be keep saying training 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 i've never heard anybody go in a hospital and, and do surgery wrong, and then the, the, the chief surgeon walk in and say, you know, we need to reevaluate our training. No. They, they don't do that in any other professions. My name is Jeff Kennedy. I'm a native of Washington, D.C. I'm a former worker at the D.C. City Council. I used to work for the chair of the Judiciary Committee. I've worked in public housing, uh, Valley Green, and as a roving leader, and as a school teacher in uh, some of the poorest neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. for over 20 years. My experience uh, through ministry and working with these particular cases ranges all the way back to police shootings in the late 80s and, and early 90s. Um, I personally ministered to the uh, Deontay Rollins uh, family where Deontay Rollins was shot by a police officer uh, in the back over a minibike. Uh, while the police officer was off duty. And so we had an opportunity to work with that family so that they could receive justice in the District of Columbia. But my involvement with uh, D.C. Ferguson and Black Lives Matters has been, you know, part of the ministry. Uh, I went to a Howard Divinity School in Union Theological, and this is, you know, part of the ministry in which we do. You said that no police officer has ever been charged with uh, killing someone. Can you talk a little bit more about that? No. And when you when you look at the case history, uh, one of the things that came out in the Deontay Rollins case was uh, the attorney Gregory Gregory Latimer 
uh, found evidence that no District of Columbia police officer have ever been charged with an unjustified shooting. Uh, and so for an entire city to never to have an unjustified shooting, regardless of whether the FBI was involved in investigating the case or whether some other federal agency was involved in uh, in, in, in the shooting, um, it lets you know that uh, how deeply embedded the blue wall is. And so, you know, this is something that systematically has occurred throughout the country. As, you know, most people know, uh, police forces were created to, uh, for the simple fact to watch or to have oversight of, of black lives, whether whether they were committing crimes or not, to uh, supervise, you know, black folks after slavery. So, you know, that's where we are as a country. And when, and when you look at what's going on around the country nationally, you know, trying to find justice within a racist system that wasn't designed to protect you in the first place, it's extremely difficult to do. So are you a native of D.C.? Yes, I went to Blue and McKinley High Schools here in the District of Columbia, and I grew up on Martin Luther King Avenue. So for this piece, looking at black power at 50, so you have that long view in terms of 1966, what was happening here, and 2016. I was, I was a little young in 1966. Yes, 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 <laughs> but still, you were here, right? But you still have a sense of that, these decades. Yes, absolutely. And... Uh, what, what do you think is important as we look at community activism and activism around, including activism around police brutality, when you look at that span of time? Well, I think this generation has a, a particular blessing, and it's, that is they can go back and look at what was occurring in different generations and look at the mistakes that they made and also take time to speak to a lot of the people who are still around who have done actions, uh, who was part of SNCC, who was part of uh, the Civil Rights Movement, who was part of the Black Panther Party, who was part of uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, a lot of those elders are still uh, are still around, and you can go back and find out some of the pitfalls that they had, and then the different things that you can do, and then the different style of communication that we have and with social media, where we actually can communicate with each other now as we're in the past you know the 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 communication was somewhat limited so you know activists now have an actual a much larger impact and have opportunity to make a much larger impact internationally uh than in years past and what people don't realize is everything doesn't start big you know sometimes it starts with a small room of people and they just have an idea, and they, they take that idea forward, and they find out that other people agree with their idea. And next thing you know, it grows into something much larger. But you create movement within yourselves, and that is what creates change. You know, just the little changes that you make every day with yourself. And that creates a ripple with people around you. So that, you know, or even big, bigger ripple can, you know, happen in a community, in a city, and in a nation. So before you got here, I asked them about what is it about D.C. in particular that seems to discourage people from being out in the streets as much. And I, I do know that from talking to other people who 
grew up here is that they always talk about how for the March on Washington that people who lived here and like worked for government, for example, were told not to come. So talk about D.C. as a place of activism. Well, you know, when you when you look at D.C., you know, you're talking about a lot of different branches, but you're also talking about a city that has the seat of government. And a lot of people do work for the federal government or uh, contractors or or people that do business with the federal government. So uh, a lot of times the people of Washington are, are, are the placeholders of, uh, for somewhat the people in the seat of power. So uh, a lot of the activism does come from outside of the city. So government is a major industry in Washington, D.C. So you're not going to find people putting their jobs out on the lines or being on the front lines when they work for the particular agency that, you know, that you're actually protesting before. I mean, but yet we do have uh, and have always had a long legacy of activism, you know, all the way back from Howard University, the University District of Columbia, it's the New Negro Movement, uh, Alan Locke, uh, you know, Stokely Carmichael, SNCC. I mean, all of those things did happen, you know, in Washington, D.C., If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Participants in the Movement for Black Lives here in D.C. This is part three of the series Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. And this is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, we'll hear some of those voices of veterans of the Black Power movement from 50 years ago and later Gerald Horn. Stay with us. brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on search for tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. 
will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. When, uh, when, when Stokely ish, uh, uh, first uttered the words Black Power here in Willie Ricks, uh, I was still an organizer for SNCC in, 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 uh, in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. I was in a little town right outside of Laurel, Mississippi, called Strike City that had, that had been created by a bunch of farmers who had been put off of a plantation. And so, and I took a busload of them from Strike City over to Durant, Mississippi, to join uh, the, Mer- the Meredith March. Uh, at about this time, because well, it was about this the day that it happened uh, 50 years ago. And so I was in the Mississippi Delta at the time uh, organizing there. And then in 1968, I believe it was, uh, we decided to move to Washington, D.C. And by the time I got here, Marion Barry was already here. John Wilson was already here. I think uh, Stokely, I mean, uh, 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 the, yeah, Stokely was already here. And so uh, they are developed in Washington, D.C., probably the largest group of SNCC organizers anywhere in the country. And, and, and later on, when I got elected to the city council, I used to say not only were they all here, but they all lived in Ward 1, which is what I represented on, on the city council for, for 16 years. And, uh, uh, and I did the very best I could to, uh, to represent them. Uh, and sometimes they, they agreed with me and supported me, uh, and sometimes they didn't, even when I was right. So, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so we had an interesting history. But let me just say, that by the time uh, Marion Barry got here, but well, let me just say one other thing about this. Uh, there's a parallel between, there was a parallel between Washington, D.C. and the Mississippi Delta at the time. It was, the Mississippi Delta was about 76% black. Washington, D.C. was about 76% black. People in Washington, D.C. couldn't vote. People in Mississippi couldn't vote. And, uh, and so we got here and found out that these people in D.C. couldn't vote. And of course, Barry and, and, and myself and others, John Wilson, started the Free D.C. Movement, picket and march around this city. I remember marching across that bridge in southeast one time with John Wilson. I told him I wasn't doing that anymore. <laughs> I said, that's too far. <laughs> so I had marched my 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery. That was the end of my, I ain't marching that far no more. But, uh, but my point is that we had to get the, the right to vote here for people to vote. And one of the, one of the differences between Mississippi and the Delta was that you could register people to vote here and not get shot at. And I worry about your house getting burned down at night and without, when you could sleep after you went out and registered people to vote. And although uh, you needed to register to vote here for the same reason you need to register to vote in Mississippi. And, uh, and <clears throat> let me make the other point about, about voting, which I'll, and I want to talk more about that in a second, but, but the people in Mississippi, the bad, the Ku Klux Klan and all those night riders in Mississippi did not stop lynching black people because they got religion, because they, they went down Peter and came up Paul and started liking black people. They stopped because African-Americans started to get registered to vote, and they started to take over those offices, the mayors and, and the sheriffs and, and, and these various places, uh, in these places in, in, in the South. And, and, and the reason why African-Americans can still live down there today 
in peace and not have to worry about the house getting burned down because of that. And so uh, people in D.C. needed the right to vote because they needed to defend themselves. Uh, in Washington, D.C., when Macmillan from South Carolina was running this city, you could apply for a job as a policeman or a fireman in Washington, D.C., in Macmillan's office in South Carolina and get a job in Washington. African-Americans living here couldn't get a job in D.C. So the same people that were ruling the South were ruling Washington, D.C., and it didn't take, didn't take us long to figure that out. And let me just say, finally, by the time we get uh, elected to office here in D.C., uh, Marion Barry, myself, and John Wilson, and others, we run for office as perhaps the most qualified people to ever run for office in this country. We had organized in the Mississippi Delta. We registered people to vote. Marion had started a free D.C. movement here. He had started Pride Incorporated. Uh, he brought those principles and those organizations into the government, set up a summer youth program. I organized a self-help housing program similar to the one I was running in the Mississippi Delta. It helped to change this city. And by the time we, uh, President Obama ran for office in, in uh, 2008, African-Americans' earnings had gone up in America from $50 million, from about $8 billion in, in 1950 to $900 billion. Most of that growth in, in employment and money came from the public sector. The year President Obama ran, there were 405 black mayors in the United States. We were practicing black power. African-Americans were earning more money. They were going to school, and, and the numbers much greater than they'd ever gone to school before. And it, was, it really had meant a lot in terms of, of our own people being able to make progress. And I think we can, we can really attribute all of that to the snick spirit of black power, which we started not only in the Mississippi Delta, but brought out to all these cities across America. Uh, you saw headquarters for Black Panther Party, SNCC, the D.C. Black United Front. The other thing that's important is to see the role of Howard University in all this. People go, what? Yes, Howard University. Howard emerged as a black power ally. They provided access to the university's many programs and resources. So this town and gown relationship actually um, was the fruit of the labors of students who had pushed and fought for some recognition. They protested and seized the administration building because Howard would not respond to their demands for black power. This, in fact, caused for a shift in the leadership. The president who was there left and James Cheek came in. And when you look at what was going on, there was a, a lot of student power tied up in the Howard University Student Association budget. So they could bring notable, powerful people from around the world who were thinkers and activists and, and, and present them to community and campus. See, we have been brainwashed. Everything good in the authority was made white. We look at Jesus, we see a white with brown hair and blue eyes. We look at all the angels, we see white with brown hair and blue eyes. Now I'm sure if there's a heaven in the sky and the color folks die and go to heaven, and all the colored angels, they must be in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. We look at Miss America, we see white. We look at Miss World, we see white. We look at Miss Universe, we see white. Even ties in the King of the Jungle in back Africa. Uh, many, many organizations existed at the time. I have a whole list here. We don't even really have time to even mention them. But I have the new school, Eastern High School Freedom Annex, the Center for Black Education, uh, Ujamaa School, Pride Incorporated, Nia, Nia Shule, the, the Third World Newspaper, Watoto Nation House, Black Star Land Co Cooperative, RAM, Revolutionary <laughs> Action Movement, Black Seeds, Bl uh, Black Land Movement, Black Land News, United Black Front, 
Black Rep, who remembers the Black Rep, our own history club, Temple of the Black Messiah, Union Temple Baptist Church, Imani Temple, uh, Asar Set Society, the Black Man's Army of Liberation, the Re Republic of New Africa, <laughs> you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. We had many, many independent thinking organizations that developed out of this idea that black people needed and deserved and needed to work for power for their own, power that they could use to pursue our interest. You just heard the voice of voices of veteran black power activists based here in D.C., Baba Lumumba, Nia Kilkenny, and before her, Frank Smith speaking on a black power anniversary program produced by the SNCC Legacy Project, Black Power Chronicles, and I Mix What I Like on WPFW Pacifica Radio in June of this year. And there was also a snippet of Muhammad Ali speaking at Howard University inserted there as well. And now for our last part of this part three of our series, my recent conversation with Gerald Horn, who will give his historical perspective on black power. And we'll be right back with Gerald Horn.
1966 movement had historical antecedents. It had historical roots. It was a reflection and extension, in a sense, of the Marcus Garvey movement. It was a reflection and extension of the movement that many people on the left had led for decades with regard to self-determination, what was referred to as the Negro Nation. It was a reflection and extension of the Africans, particularly the enslaved Africans who created maroon communities during the battle days of slavery in the 19th century and in the 18th century and earlier, that is to say in the certain areas of Florida, certain areas of the Dismal Swamp on the North Carolina-Virginia border. So what happened in 1966 was not necessarily that unique in the sense that it had happened before. I guess for those of us who think about that era as being, I don't know, defining in the sense that it was, for those of us living in this time, the first time that people probably asserted a a black pride, uh, uh, a willingness to kind of vigorously and sometimes aggressively oppose uh, the state in terms of police violence, uh, in terms of the the ways that uh, our children were educated or in the ways that we expressed ourselves culturally? Well, yes and no. I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on, on the thesis, but I think of the Negro Fort. Uh, I think we're marking the 200th anniversary of the Negro Fort, which was cited in North, what is now North Florida. This is during the time of Spanish rule in Florida. Uh, the Negroes were much better armed than the Black Panther Party in 200 years ago. Matter of fact, uh, there's no comparison. I mean, they had cannons, they had swords. Uh, it was only a lucky shot by then U.S. military leader Andrew Jackson that led to the destruction of the Negro Fort. I mean, I start my book, Negro Comrades of the Crown, with an account of the Negro Fort. So I think that's part of the problem, in fact, that people <laughs> make this assumption that what happened 50 years ago was spectacularly unique. I mean, it was unique to a certain degree, but as I said, it had historical antecedents, and perhaps it would have had more resonance and more staying power if those historical antecedents had been acknowledged. So when you look today at the 50 years forward, I hear a lot of rumbling from even just the political establishment that a lot of the gains from before the black power movement of the civil rights movement have been rolled back. There's a lot of concern about the Voting Rights Act, the emboldening of white supremacists. So what are your thoughts in terms of moving forward 50 years later in terms of where we are now and how people can utilize what was learned uh, by the black power movement? Well, once again, to revert to history, I would argue that a central theme of European settlement in North America since its inception has been counter-revolution. That is to say, going back to 1676 and Bacon's Rebellion in neighboring Virginia, where mostly European poor settlers sought to overthrow British rule because they thought Britain wasn't moving fast enough to liquidate Native American sovereignty. And in 1776, the counter-revolution 
1776, a revolt against British attempts to uh, impose abolition, or at least that's what was thought at the time, by slave owners like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and all the rest. In 1876, with the overthrow of Reconstruction following the U.S. Civil War, that is to say the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the squashing of black voting rights, and then 1976, when Ronald Wilson Reagan tried to seize the Republican nomination from Gerald Ford, was defeated but made a spectacular comeback in 1980, starting his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of where civil rights protesters and organizers were murdered by the Klan and law enforcement authorities. And now... 240 years after the founding of the United States of America, I think we're in another counter-revolutionary phase. And I think that if we are to draw lessons from the past, we need, in the first place, to draw lessons from how we were able to escape previous snares. And looking at the black power movement, one of the things I would like to underscore and underline was the fact that at its best, it was not a parochial movement. At its best, it extended the hand of friendship to Africa and the Caribbean in the first place. And, of course, you had black power advocates who fled North America to reside in Canada. Some of them still, are still residing there and maintain close relations with the United States. And, of course, as the book that you're mentioning by Kamosi Woodard edited, that is, say, Black Power 50, uh, they talk about Black Panther movements in Israel and Australia. And I think that if we are to overcome and overturn what is often a very negative and counter-revolutionary situation we face in the United States, we should try to emulate the best of the black power movement of 50 years ago, which is, of course, internationalizing the black power movement. Of those international movements, what movements do you think have, I guess, had staying power around the globe I know there were movements from Africa to Asia, even in Israel. I saw that there was a, a Black Panther movement. And I also saw in the same book the Dalit people were inspired to create a, a Black Panther movement. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by staying power. I mean, if you look at some of the organizational forms from 1966, the Black Panther Party, as we understood it then no longer exists. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as we understood it then, no longer exists, but they left a very deep legacy and a very profound impact, particularly on people's consciousness. And I would say the same holds true for the movements you mentioned, notably in India, Australia, and to a degree in Israel. And I think that that is the ultimate test of an organization, not only does it survive, but does it leave a deep imprint? Because, as you know, there are certain organizations that have survived, uh, but without mentioning any names, uh, one questions their continuing utility. Kind of changing the subject or, you know, dealing with some of the current events, I know that you were really following this article that's received a lot of attention in the New York Times questioning the the role of 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 black identity politics in shaping some of the the election results. Why don't you talk about that? Well I take it you're referring to the article by a Columbia University professor 
who said that the reason that Trump won and the Democrats lost is because the Democrats paid too much attention to so-called identity politics. Now, of course, this is a very nebulous term. He doesn't define it. If you consult past issues of the New York Times, you'll see references to white identity politics and white nationalism. If you consult other sources, you may see a reference to Zionism as identity politics since it refers to a political movement based on a particular ethno-religious designation. But that's not what he meant. Uh, he was referring uh, to black people in the first place and feminism and other movements of that nature, which is very curious, uh, number one, because I, I recall, I'm old enough to remember, how in the 1980s when Walter Mondale lost in 1984 and when Michael Dukakis lost in 1988, it was said that they paid too, too much attention to the, quote, special interest, unquote. And that meant people like yourself and myself. So we evolved or devolved from being special interests to being practitioners of identity politics. But what's even more curious about this particular so-called analysis is that it lets the Trump voters off the hook because supposedly they're not responsible for Donald J. Trump getting into office, it's the people who voted against him by supermajorities who are responsible. So therefore, black women who voted against Donald J. Trump 95 to 5, they're responsible because they oftentimes supported Black Lives Matter, which is presumably a practitioner of identity politics. That is to say, if you're protesting against having your life taken by an officer of the state, you're a practitioner of identity politics. And... What's, what's curious about that is that the author, in his vagueness, obviously does not endorse, at least I don't recall him endorsing, the idea of people not protesting against being killed. But that's the clear reference, that's the clear inference, I should say, to what he said, which led another Columbia professor, whose name I will mention, Catherine Frankie, to suggest that this was no more than the politics of David Duke in an academic gown, in the sense that He's laying the framework and the foundation for a right-wing surge by blaming the victims of Trumpism for the rise of Trumpism. And what's even more curious is that with all of this attention to the so-called white working class, what's striking about that is that they're smuggling a race concept into the idea of class solidarity. I mean, there is a working class that includes black and white and Latino and Native American and Asian American, et cetera. And so when you begin to talk about the white working class, I think the accent should be on white. This is a, a, a movement of white identity politics, quite frankly and quite bluntly. And it's a movement in a sense, in a profound sense, that's directly and profoundly racist. And it does not answer the threshold question, which is that, few have suffered more if you're going to segment the working class than the black working class with the rise of globalization. But the black working class didn't vote for the right, and so that should lead to the logical question, well, then why did these other members of the working class vote for the right? May it have something more to do with race than class? And in any case, if you were to do a deeper analysis of why so many of the white working class and white middle class voted for the right, you may want to say that the white elite mastered the art 
of counter-revolution that has been their history in North America and that has been the history of their foreign policy, Chile, 1973, the murder of Patrice Lumumba in 1961. But increasingly, the fruits of counter-revolution have not been distributed evenly, shall we say, which has led the white masses to then execute their own attempt at counter-revolution, except it's going to take place at home which I think is one of the reasons why so many in the elite are justifiably and understandably nervous because a counter-revolution oftentimes leaves winners and losers. It is not clear if all the present members of the U.S. ruling elite will be winners. It's like musical chairs. When the music stops, some of these folks are going to be left without chairs to sit in. So this Mm. is the kind of analysis and thinking that we need, not this sort of superficial nonsense that cosseted tenured moderates are putting forward from their Ivy League ivory towers. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was the voice of Professor Gerald Horn to round out this third part of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C. Parts 1 and 2 are posted on our website, onthegroundshow.org, and this part will be posted there, too. And for our regular listeners, this conversation will also serve as our monthly segment called The F Word when we explore issues of fascism, pre-fascism, and proto-fascism, if you're tuning in for that. And we hope to renew our series next month at the start of the new year, which will mark the two-year anniversary of that series. So that will do it for us on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. A special thanks to Chantel James and Michael Byfield for their contributions to the show. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella, and also thanks to Karen Spellman of the SNCC Legacy Project and the Black Power Chronicles Project for offering us the sound from the June program that they, that they held. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm Esther Varum. Raise your voice out there. Peace.